It's great to have the bells back. They were bumped by Snowmageddon, so it's nice to have them back with us. Good morning, everybody. Last weekend was fun because it proved that some of you actually read my blog. We had nearly 1,500 people who showed up to hear the worst-kept secret in the world that Chapel Hill is moving to Port Orchard. Not all of us, but a few of us, and Pastor Megan, as you know, is going to be leading the charge. We really believe that God is calling us to plant a, a, a Chapel Hill congregation in, uh, in the community of Port Orchard. Now, it's important to know it'll, it'll be one church, one session, one same senior pastor, one budget, but uh, Pastor Megan will be devoting her entire attention to this in the coming years, and we are very excited about what we think God is going to do. This is really the down payment on the sort of things that we talked about when we began talking about beyond these walls. There's not anything much more beyond these walls than this. And it wouldn't be possible as we're looking into our future were it not for your generosity. So could I just thank you again for what you have given to eliminate our debt. We started at $5.5 million. Do you know that we are this close? I mean this close to being below $2 million in remaining debt. It's spectacular. So thank you. Thank you for that. I hope you were excited. I know a bunch of you were because you showed up at our two town hall meetings. I see Bruce. We had a standing room only in Port Orchard, standing room at, only in, uh, in, in, our, in the harbor uh, this last Thursday. You see some pictures behind you. It was just, just fun. And you were clearly eager to hear what God is going to do. Our hope is that we're going to plant a church that's not going to transfer one group of Christians from one church to another. We, don't, we won't want to do that. What we want to do is reach the de-churched and the unchurched folks, and there are plenty of those. According to statistics, 75% of the, of the community in Port Orchard is unchurched, completely de-churched. And so we want to reach those. We're going to plant that beautiful town, uh, that church uh, in that beautiful waterfront town, and it is really cause for excitement and celebration. This morning we return to our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in another beautiful waterfront town. I am going to uh, be leading a bunch of you there, and Capernaum is one of my favorite places. And so as we pick up the story in Capernaum, we return to a series that we are calling, uh, perhaps rather uh, brazenly, uh, Sick of Religion. And we pick it up where we, where we left off last week. Uh, Jesus uh, made Capernaum his home base. Nazareth was his hometown, but Capernaum was really his home base. It was there that he launched his earthly ministry. It was there that he preached his first sermon. In their synagogue, he cast out an evil spirit in a man that showed up at that synagogue. He was healing people by droves. He even reached out and touched a leper and restored his rotting flesh As the word got out, the crowds were pressing in on him. And as we saw last week, to the point that people couldn't even get to him. Four friends were trying to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus to, his, to be healed by him. They couldn't reach him, so they clambered up onto the roof of poor Peter's house, and they chopped a hole in his roof and lowered this guy right down in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he, he forgave this man's sin and gave him back his legs. It was a wonderful, beautiful twofer. It was also the introduction of some ugliness as well. Because for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, the religious snobs make an appearance. The scribes, they are called. When we say scribes, we're not talking about people who wrote down notes. 
Scribes were the religious lawyers. They were the, the leaders of the, of the, of the church, of the, of, the, of the people, religiously. And as we saw last week, they were taking all kinds of internal pot shots at Jesus. And as we see today, those knuckleheads were only just getting warmed up. In fact, Mark can't even tell this story without letting a little sarcasm leak in. I, I really think you need to read this with that sense of that. Uh, in, in fact, if, you know, in, in the time of Jesus, there was no such thing as air quotes. But I'm quite confident that really for us to read this well, we ought to be uh, using air quotes around a particular word. So uh, as I recite this passage for you, every time you hear the word sinners, I want you to put an air quote around it. Would you do that for me? Let's practice. Put your air quotes up. Sinners. Yeah, perfect. All right. I knew you could do it. Way to go. Educated people. So the text comes from Mark chapter 2, and, uh, and I'm going to be starting at uh, verse 13. This is Jesus we're talking about. He went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors, get ready, and sinners were reclining with Jesus and the disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that the sinners and tax collectors were eating with Jesus, they said to his disciples, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, it is not the well who need a physician, but those who are ill, those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you please speak to us through your word? Would you speak to us where we need to hear it and change our hearts that we might be different going out than we were coming in? We ask this through Jesus. Amen. Capernaum was a thriving fishing town on the western, northwestern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And like every thriving business, right behind the business came the tax man. And that's who we meet today. Jesus was walking along the shore, and he notices the tax man sitting there. Now, he's described to us as Levi, the son of Alphaeus, but you know him by a different name. What was the name? Matthew. This is the gospel writer, Matthew. But at the time, he wasn't Matthew to Jesus. He was the tax guy. And uh, the reason that he had his booth right by the shore was that every time a fishing boat came in, the tax guy wanted to make sure that he counted the catch before they had a chance to hide any of it so that he could tax it fully. This last Friday, I went and got my taxes prepared. I went to my tax guy, my Levi. Well, not quite the same. I I like my guy. How many have gotten your taxes done for the year? Uh, Poor poor, poor people, the rest of you. Um, None of us enjoy paying taxes, but first century Jews really hated it. Because the tax guy was both a a traitor and a crook. The tax collector worked for Rome. It would be the equivalent of an American going to fight for ISIS. How would we feel about that? We would consider it a betrayal. And it is precisely how they perceived it. 
He was a collaborator with the enemy. And not only that, he was a crook. The way that the tax collector made money was to squeeze a little extra out of every taxpayer. It would be like an IRS agent who was charging commission or something. I mean, it was woefully unfair and outrageous. Uh, a tax collector was only a pariah in the community. He was only slightly higher on the social ladder than the leper, truly. A tax collector could not be a witness in court. A tax collector could not attend synagogue. They were a disgrace to their family. Well, a, a, a beggar could not, they were forbidden to receive alms from a tax collector. I'm sure the beggar appreciated that rule. They really were the scum of the Jewish earth. So can you imagine the shock when Jesus is walking along the shore, trailing behind are his fishing buddies, and he looks at this guy and he says, hey, follow me. Can you imagine the shock of that? That word for follow in Mark is always a really important word. It's not just trail along behind. It is the beginning of conversion. It is the, a word for faith. It is the beginning of, of a journey of discipleship. So it's a really significant thing when we are told that Levi rose and followed Jesus. Now, how do you think the rest of the boys felt about this guy joining their merry band? This was the guy that screwed them out of some of their money. This was the guy that stole food from their children's mouths. And now Jesus has invited him to follow along with them. It's outrageous. But you ain't seen nothing yet. Mark, in his typical fashion, without any explanation, without any introduction, he takes us on to the very next line we read, which is, and he, as he reclined at table in his house. What? We were just reading that he says, get up from your tax booth, follow me. And suddenly we find, as he reclined at table at his house. Who's the he? It's Jesus. It's shocking enough to us that the tax collector would be invited to follow Jesus, but now we find Jesus dining with him in his home. Did you know that if a tax collector even touched someone's house, it was rendered unclean? How much more unclean was the house that belonged to the tax collector? And yet here is Jesus dining with him. And could I show you what we mean? We read over that word as if we just kind of skip over it. This is what it meant to eat at a table They were down this way, and George was here, and Fred was right here, and, you know, past the locks, and how about some bagels? I mean, this, it was very close. It was very intimate. This is the way that Jesus was dining with this this social pariah named Levi. But it gets worse. He wasn't the only one that was reclining at table with Jesus. Did you see the rest of them? Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with him as well, for there were many who were following him. It's not just the one. They've attracted a crowd. A flock of tax collectors have descended upon Levi's house. And here's that word. It makes its first appearance, sinner. It's the first of four times in this text. And it's synonymous for tax collector, but it's wider, a wider swath The word sinner at the time might include drunkards or prostitutes or gamblers. And so sinners might be miscreants as we would see them today. But the word sinners also included people who just weren't religious enough. So if you worked on the Sabbath, you were a sinner. If you were a shepherd, 
You were a sinner. Anyone who did not eat the right foods, anyone who did not wash ritually, anyone who did not fast properly, anyone who did not seek to keep all 613 of the rules that the Pharisees had created were considered sinners. In other words, sinners would include criminal types as we might view them, but some of the sinners were just so poor or so busy or so ignorant that they couldn't keep up with all of the religious rules. So whatever the reason, when you read sinners, you're you're looking at the outsiders. They were not in, and they were not welcome in. Unlike the insiders, the religious people, the scribes. And when these guys show up in the story, we are reminded why Jesus was sick of religion. Someone suggested it might be good to define what I mean by religion. And so let me take a shot at it. This is what I mean when I say that we are sick of religion. Religion is right behavior that is meant to earn God's favor. In other words, it's obeying the rules so you can twist God's arm so he has no choice but to treat you nicely. And that describes the scribes. Say that ten times. Describes the scribes, describes That describes the scribes. They behaved themselves. They knew all of the rules. They obeyed all of the rules. They avoided yucky people who did not know the rules or did not obey the rules. And ta-da, they were God's favorites. And those who did not follow the rules, like the tax collectors and the sinners, they were not in the religious club and they were to be avoided and shunned and shamed. Until Jesus came along. Rabbi Jesus seemed to have a place in his heart and in his circle and even at his table for yucky people. For Jesus, it was not about righteous behavior or about following the rules. For Jesus, it was about following him and allowing him to change you from the inside out to make you into the person that God had created you to be. And suddenly, there's a place for broken people. Suddenly, there's a place for yucky people. And it didn't take long for that good word to spread. We read that Levi's house was packed out with all kinds of yucky people, all kinds of tax collectors, all kinds of sinners who were eager to meet the rabbi who didn't view them or treat them like dirt. And the scribes were outraged. Imagine how much they wanted to catch Jesus in flagrante delecto in that they were willing to go inside of a a sinner's house, a tax collector's house, just in order to be able to catch him in their outrage at the spectacle of reclining with these sinners. In last week's story, the scribes kept their critical thoughts internal, which didn't hide them from Jesus, it turns out, and that was awkward when he called them out. But today we discover that this time they just can't keep their mouths shut. And so they murmur. There's a great tradition biblically for murmuring. It has a long and storied career, murmuring. It's found way back in the Exodus story when Moses led the people out of bondage in Egypt and into freedom. 
We read that no matter what God did, no matter how he cared for his children, they murmured and grumbled and groused and kvetched and complained and whined to the point we read that God was ready to strike them down and start over. He was sped up to here. And in this story, it's the scribes who were the murmurers. And I want you to notice something about this murmuring. It didn't, they didn't say anything to Jesus. They didn't have the guts to speak to Jesus. They'll build up the guts later on. But they still haven't worked up the courage to do so. But what they do instead is actually more invidious. They, they pull his disciples aside. And they, they try to split off his supporters. And they murmur to him, to them. They say to them, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear the contempt dripping from their lips. And you know what they're doing, right, when you read this. They're trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and his disciples. And they're doing so with their breathless outrage. If their hearts were softer, if they were genuinely religious people religious leaders of the first order, they they might have witnessed something amazing. They might have seen that people who were far off from God were being drawn closer to God. They might have celebrated for that, given thanks to God for that. But their hearts were so hard that they were ticked because their world of right behavior and proper religion, religion that had to be done a certain way, was being upended. And they didn't like it at all. And so they murmured. There, is, there are a few things that are more toxic and divisive and contagious than murmuring. Murmuring is like the flu. It is passed from one diseased carrier to another. And I'm not talking here about a healthy disagreement or about asking hard questions. Jesus actually said, you ought to do that. When you have a disagreement, he even told us how to do it. He said, go face to face, hash it out, talk it through. That is okay and legitimate. And I'll tell you, I've had a lot of very healthy conversations like that in recent months. But I'm talking about murmuring here. That's what the text presents Complaining, side comments to someone else that are not intended to help, not intended to heal, not intended to draw together, but they are only intended to divide and to stir up. Murmuring is deadly, beloved. And it's deadly even when it happens in a sweetheart church. As you are aware, this last year we have been trying to do a better job of reaching out beyond these walls. Your leaders, your elders realized that we had become somewhat ingrown. We were becoming a little self-centered, a little self-satisfied. And we knew that we had, in order to be faithful to God's call to the Christ, the call of Jesus, we knew that we had to do a better job of welcoming outsiders. And so we have tried some new things, as we've always done, by the way. Some of the things have worked great. Some of them didn't work so well. But God has blessed our risk-taking. Did you know that last weekend's attendance was up by over 500 from a year before? That's, that's a 52% increase. And that is something to be celebrated. And I can tell from your smattering of applause that <laughs> some of you are thrilled about that. 
But as we also have discovered, change is hard. It represents loss and pain for some, and, and it has stirred up some murmuring, way more than usual, as a matter of fact. And so I just want to ask us, as we engage this passage of Scripture where we find the scribes that are murmuring away, I want to ask you to, to, to take assessment. What are the kinds of conversations that I have? What is the nature of my conversation? When I walk out of the sanctuary and I'm talking with people out in the foyer, or when I'm talking about things uh, in, in relationships at home and at work, what is the nature of our conversations? Do you say, wow, God is using us to plant a new church. How cool is that? Do we say, wow, did you see all of those kids in Mexico's church? Aren't you glad that we reach out to young people? Did you say, wow, that Pastor Megan, she can preach a stem winder of a sermon. Do we say, wow, that anthem was beautiful. Wow, that organist is incredible. Or honestly, do you catch yourself murmuring about the thing you don't like? The volume, or the lighting, or the seating, or the music. What would happen if every conversation, beloved, whether it is in church or home or school or work, if the first word we spoke was not a word of murmuring, but a word of encouragement, a word of affirmation, a word of compliment, how would that change our culture? How would that change our community? The scribes were murmurers, and their murmuring revealed really what spiritual elitists they were. You see, they were outraged that Jesus would associate with these yucky people. And in contrast, of course, to themselves, for they were the spiritually upright ones. They were the religious folks. And here's where the Lord weighs in with a little sarcasm of his own. Did you notice it? He said, it is not the well who have need of a physician, but those who are sick. In, the, in this time, there was no such thing as preventive care. You didn't go to the doctor for your annual checkup. You didn't have a blood draw to check on your cholesterol levels. You went to a doctor when you were sick. And Jesus makes that point, and after he offers the illustration, then comes the mic drop. If he'd had a mic, he would have dropped it. Because he said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember those air quotes we used earlier? You've got to imagine that when Jesus said, I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, that he had to have air quotes around that one. The scribes considered themselves to be those righteous people and that the rest of that crowd were sinners. The scribes were the ones who knew what real religion looked like. The scribes were the ones who were the guardians of what was proper and spiritual. They were the preachers. They were the teachers. Or to put it in a different way that makes me way more uncomfortable, the scribes were the senior pastors of their time. And they didn't even recognize the biting irony in Jesus' words, for they weren't righteous at all. They were the yucky people in the story. They were the sinners, and their self-righteousness oozes off the page. The fact is, then and now, people are sick of religion because they are sick of religious people. When the church is more concerned with taking care of itself and keeping out the riffraff, it finds itself in opposition to the Lord. Jesus told us that his mission, he told us his mission in these words. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
And when we who have been found become proud of being found and consumed with protecting ourselves from the influences of sinners, we cease being the church. I received an anonymous welcome card recently, and I'd like to just point out something. This is a welcome card. It is not a complaint card. (laughs) And it doesn't count if you couch your complaint as a prayer. Just saying. I received an anonymous one of these, and ordinarily we don't read anonymous uh, notes. They, the instruction is if, they don't, if you're not willing to sign it, I'm not going to read it. But this one slipped through the cracks, and here's what, I, it, what, here's what it said. I believe the primary purpose of the shepherd is to feed the sheep, to tend the sheep, not to find new sheep. The primary purpose of the church is for believers, not unbelievers. I'm glad to hear some of you gasping, although I suspect some might agree with it. Could I just tell you, I could not disagree more. And this text is one of the reasons that I disagree. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Which is utter irony, of course. Because Paul, as Paul would say it, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. As the Apostle John would later write, if we say we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to, save, save the, to seek the, and to save the lost. We are those lost people. We are those sinners that Jesus sought and saved. We are the yucky ones that Christ transforms by the power of his spirit. And if we who are now insiders by God's grace, will not go to, talk to, eat with, welcome in other yucky people. We deny the call and the mission of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God, have mercy on us. Forgive us when we forget who we were, what we were, the pariah that we were when you came looking for us. Forgive us when we think that our religion has to be a certain way, a certain shape, a certain form. Forgive us when we forget the example of Jesus who said, just follow me and I will change you. I will make you. Forgive us for that, God, and, sp- and spare us. May we never be the church that closes in and holds out the riffraff. May we be the church that c- courageously welcomes the riffraff in to join the rest of the riffraff on the inside. And in so doing, may we change the reputation of religion. May we change the reputation of, that might be held by others of Jesus. May we present him, may we present you for who you really are. For we pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.